Hello and welcome. Um, welcome to the LSE for this online event. My name is Purnima Paripati, and I am um, the LSE Fellow in Inequalities. I'm very pleased to be here to uh, welcome our panel to the LSE today. Let me start by thanking on behalf of myself and my co-organizer, Mike Savage, all of the people at LSE events, the International Inequalities Institute, the British Journal of Sociology and the Department of Sociology who have made this event possible. Particular thanks to Maddie Giles and Nina Lankar for their tireless work coordinating all of us. We have with us here today, um, Gurminder Bamra, Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies at the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex. Jens Lerke, who is Reader in Agrarian and Labor Studies in the Department of Development Studies at SOAS. LSE alumnus, Thomas Piketty, who is Professor at EHESS and the Paris School of Economics. Sanjay Reddy, who is Associate Professor of Economics at the New School for Social Research. Diego Sanchez Ancochea, who is Professor of the Political Economy of Development at the University of Oxford, and Nora Whitekus, who is Research Officer at the Inequalities Institute at the LSE and also Assistant Professor at Tilburg University. So this event will debate Thomas Piketty's urgent new book, Capital and Ideology, and will feature an interdisciplinary panel who I've just introduced. Um, and this conversation will probe the the book's views on race and slavery, the nature of capitalism, the impact of political divides, and the contours of long-term social change. Um, Piketty, who is uh, joining us today in conversation with his interlocutors, will present the book's framework and his historically informed approach for understanding and combating inequalities. Um, this conversation is just a small slice of a broader conversation and debate that you can see in the latest online issue of the British Journal for Sociology. The um, link will be in the chat. And the issue features articles from all of our participants today, as well as many other important contributions. Um, if you would like to follow up on anything you hear today, I encourage you to look up the issue and the individual articles, which um, will be free online and downloadable until the end of the month. For those uh, Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE COVID-19. This event is part of a broader series at the LSE on our the challenges of the COVID and post-COVID world. This online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available online as a podcast subject to there being no technical difficulties. Um, as usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions um, to our panelists. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted um, to myself and I will pose as many as possible to our speakers. Um, let me know your name and affiliation, and we are particularly keen to hear from LSE students, alumni, and incoming students. So if that describes you, please do let us know. Um, let me start by just saying a few words about the book we are discussing today and the order of events. So Thomas Piketty's uh, Capital and Ideology was published by Harvard University Press just before the start of the global pandemic but in many ways it 
already names some of the features of compounding historically deep inequalities. So what we have seen and what we continue to see very poignantly all around us is the ways in which inequality cannot simply be described along any one particular um, metric or vector that in fact what we see as this pandemic wreaks havoc and continues to do so, um, even when we have um, in many places a, an impressive vaccine rollout, we continue to see the way in which deep and existing disparities when it comes to race, um, international, uh, you know, the power between different countries, the impact of uh, crumbling infrastructures, uh, people's ability to address and have some, you know, direct impact on their political systems, that all of these underlying uh, inequalities have said something about, have shown us where the deepest impacts of the pandemic are, right? And so this book in many ways covers a, a very long history, looks at a whole series of overlapping both categorical as well as material inequalities, looks at the relationships between those two, but also has one incredibly important message um, that we should all think about and take away, which is to say that inequalities, whatever they are, are things that humans make and they remake, that they are not simply driven by forces outside of our control, but they are in the terms of this book, ideological, which is to say they are shaped by our policies, our politics, and our moral commitments. And we see through this book, which covers hundreds of years of history and multiple locations around the globe, um, what those moral commitments and politics have looked like and what they teach us about how we could tackle rising inequality in our world today. So for this moment, it has a lot that we can learn from. Here at the III, at the International Inequalities Institute at the LSE, we take this not simply as a standalone book that has a lot of resonance and important uh, lessons for our moment, but actually we also take it as something that in many ways is paradigmatic of what we are discovering in our own conversations about the nature of inequalities and how to tackle them, which is that it is fundamentally important that we do so in a fashion that is both interdisciplinary and multi multidisciplinary, that these are challenges that we have to tackle from multiple um, different vantage points. But we also have to understand vantage points and disciplines that sometimes are not our own. So this conversation is both a conversation about a book, but it is also a conversation that in search of foraging new debates and dialogues and methodologies for how to think about the compounding overlapping nature of both injustice and disparity around the globe. And so we will be both trying to appreciate the lessons of the book while also trying to think about what are the challenges and limits both of its approach and our existing approaches for thinking about the overlap between 
um, economic inequality and other forms of inequalities that are defined by categories such as race, class, gender, um, caste, ethnicity, and so forth. How to think about forms of inequality from different parts of the globe and what that would look like to, um, to think from perspectives that are different from the perspective we often get, which is centered around a North Atlantic conversation. To think about where our disciplines give us, as scholars, pointed tools for thinking about both the past and the future and what the limits of our current disciplinary knowledge and training is and how to think in conversation with each other across those disciplines. So that is the nature of the conversation today. Um, thank you very much for joining us. The, let me tell you a little bit about the format for today's uh, discussion. I will be introducing each of our speakers who will give very short presentations um, that speak directly to Capital and Ideology, the book, but they're very short presentations. As I said, I encourage you, if you are interested in, uh, in the conversation today, to look at the issue in the British Journal of Sociology, which will give you a much broader account of, of the questions and problems that are raised today. And after each speaker speaks for five minutes, um, Thomas Piketty very generously has uh, offered to um, engage in a kind of debate with each of his interlocutors. So we will have, I will call each of the speakers in order. We will have uh, Thomas respond one by one. And once we've heard from everybody on our panel, we will take questions from our audience. So I think that is everything that I have um, for the start of today's event. So I will um, now turn the floor over to Sanjay Reddy, who again is Associate Professor of Economics at the New School for Social Research. Thank you very much, uh, Nima. And um, good afternoon or good whatever it is to, to all of you. Um, I wanted to just thank uh, Professors Paidipati and Savage for this extraordinary effort of putting together these um, really uh, uh, comprehensive essays about a book, which is also uh, extremely comprehensive, uh, as Nima said, rightly sweeping in its ambition uh, and its reach, uh, and uh, which is not an easy book uh, to digest, which is perhaps one of the reasons that uh, some of you are here this, um, uh, today. Uh, and indeed, one of the things that I will try to do uh, is to encapsulate uh, what is the argument of the book. I've been given a little longer to speak than others so that I can simply do that at the outset uh, and then also pose, as others do, a question uh, to uh, Professor Piketty. And of course, enormous thanks to him for, for this uh, really uh, uh, very impressive uh, work and also for his uh, being here today. Uh, now, uh, as many of you uh, will... Um, um, Will will have heard also in Nima's initial marks. Uh, in some ways, uh, Piketty's um, argument marks what we might call the return of grand theory in the human sciences, as it was uh, called by someone else famously uh, three decades ago. And uh, in this case, the form of grand theory that he 
represents and disposes uh, involves not just theory, but also empirics fused uh, uh, at the hip, so to speak, in a way that really makes for a different way of doing social science and of thinking the world. If one were to distinguish between uh, Professor Piketty's first book, uh, that, not his first book, but the first book that, um, that uh, made him a global uh, phenomenon in the field of inequality studies and a household name, and the direct predecessor to the current volume, Capital and Ideology, uh, and this one, one might uh, note first and foremost, again, something that uh, Nima has already mentioned, the global sweep. Uh, of the book. And uh, there are, of course, other aspects which I will highlight, but that, that is uh, uh, certainly uh, a methodological and a substantive marker which distinguishes uh, the two. One is tempted to speak of the young and the old Piketty, but that would be uh, rather uh, saucy in the face of Professor Piketty himself, and I don't think that he's especially old. Uh, but one might instead uh, think uh, instead of speaking of epistemic breaks, of a kind of a, a, a widening and a deepening of Professor Piketty's uh, ambition and perhaps also his, um, uh, his own understanding of the problem and his call to us as to how to understand the problem. As Nima also pointed out, in some ways he's a man of the moment insofar as he's speaking of multiple and interconnected disparities on a world scale, even as social and political movements draw those to our attention. Now, very quickly, I will run through or attempt to run through six elements, six propositions, which I think together uh, make up the argument of Professor Piketty's book. And he will correct me if I'm wrong in trying to reduce his thousand plus pages to these six elements. But it was my own effort, which you can read in more detail in the, um, the text on the British Journal of Sociology webpage, which is right now available uh, freely to all, uh, what those six elements are. But I will, again, very quickly run through them. I hope this is a comprehensive description of what his argument uh, uh, consists of, or at least the pillars of that argument. The first is the proposition that we might refer to as ternary societies. Uh, this is Professor Piketty's uh, own uh, word. Uh, we might be more familiar with the word tripartite. Uh, and this is the idea that inequality has been present in most societies in history. But in most of these societies, it also took a specific form consisting of clerics, warriors, and workers, with the first two categories, although a numerical minority, possessing a dominant position. Political privileges of rulership, symbolic and social privileges, and economic privileges were together concentrated in the hands of, these, of the first two dominant estates, namely clerics and warriors. And the key point here is that this is by way of distinction to what Professor Piketty refers to as proprietary uh, uh, society, which is the kind of society we live today. And this is the second proposition. Proprietarianism is the central social and economic formation in modern times, only briefly arrested in the 20th century by partially successful efforts to tame or to limit it, and more recently resurgent, especially since the 1970s, in the form of neo-proprietarianism, what some of us might have also called neoliberalism. And this form of society is unitary rather rather than uh, tripartite or ternary in the sense that it forms, in, in the sense that property forms, that's a missing word in my description in the, in the text, property forms the single and the most central societal basis of privilege 
and domination, whether economic, social, and political. So in this society, there's a single key to all forms of domination, and that is ownership of property in contrast to pre-proprietarian uh, societies. Property is in principle accessible to all, but not in practice, since ownership is an abstract rather than a concrete idea, not intrinsically viewed as being connected to hereditary privilege, for instance. Third proposition, ideology. All societies which possess ideology have, uh, excuse me, which possess inequality, all societies which possess inequality have an ambient ideology, which justifies and thereby supports that inequality. And ideology is understood here to refer to the collection of these justificatory ideas. Although ideology is essential for the stabilization of a system, it can also be contested. And in this way, changing the ambient ideas can bring about a different trajectory in history, which Professor Piketty believes has happened at points to either diminish the extent of inequality or to increase it. And in particular, he focuses on what he calls switch points at which the arrangements that prevail are not only underdetermined, but which direction is pursued depends upon the career of ideas and social movements and politics. Fourth proposition, European world domination. And I think this is very much a distinctive feature of the current volume. European colonialism, imperialism, and the slave trade projected the proprietarian ideology on a world scale and reflected an intensive as well as an extensive form of proprietarianism, effectively viewing colonized peoples and their lands as a form of property available to be exploited in various ways, which Europe and European settler colonies did with considerable benefit to their populations, to European and Europe-derived populations. The ongoing effect of this historical experience are of considerable importance to understanding the current pattern of inequalities. Fifth, knowledge is power. Um, I've already hinted at this in the discussion of ideology. As the brief interval in which it was arrested in the mid-20th century shows through social democratic uh, movements, for example, proprietarianism is not destiny. It can be tamed through specific measures, but to advance these requires above all public understanding, including of data on the extent and nature of inequalities and how they are produced. So as to undermine proprietarian ideology and inform policies to combat inequality about which there can be reasonable disagreement. In recent years around the world, there has been a weakening of class-based politics and the ascendancy of identity cleavages. And, but this can be overcome by groups of different kinds coming together to recognize that what unites them outweighs what divides them, what unites them being the common badness of proprietarian society for them. And lead, this leads us to the sixth and last proposition, which is most actionable, participatory socialism. The most promising measures to address contemporary inequalities are those which limit the privileges of property in Professor Piketty's view, for example, through extension of, of taxes to cover a wider variety of assets, sizable increases in tax rates applying to wealth and income, make, and of course, inheritance uh, taxes being among them, uh, making certain property privileges effectively temporary rather than permanent, limiting the governance rights that go with property claims and demanding, by demanding that these be shared with workers, and pursuing approaches to regional and global development which combat inequality across as well as within countries. And Dr. Piketty, uh, Professor Piketty argues that a coalition can potentially be constructed consisting of all but the ultra-rich in favor of such internationalist and egalitarian policies, but this requires political realignments and new actors who champion this program of participatory socialism. 
Taken together, it's clear that Piketty's propositions form a grand theory. Now, I know I'm run out of time practically, Nima. Will you give me one minute to pose my question to Professor Piketty? I, I thought I would take five minutes to summarize Professor Piketty's thousand pages, but inevitably I've taken 10, 10 minutes, I suppose. So here is my one minute question uh, in the spirit of the, the exercise that others will be asking Professor Piketty too. And this concerns the distinction between proprietarianism and capitalism, which I found slippery throughout the book and one which I felt perhaps he could be pressed on analytically and politically. Uh, traditional analyses of capitalism share Professor Piketty's idea that property precedes capitalism and that property regimes uh, of various kinds have existed. But they view capitalism as something more than what he calls the intensification and extension on a world scale of the idea of property alone. Capitalism is on these various conventional, perhaps, but also traditional accounts characterized by other qualitative features and dynamics. For instance, the drive to profit making, the centrality of wage labor or other features depending on the analyst and the view. But in one or another way, there are particular qualitative features going beyond the widening and the deepening of property itself, which characterize uh, uh, capitalism. And this matters not just to analysis, but to prescription in various ways because, and here I will end with these uh, very three minor examples, what forms of resistance may be expected to transformational action, what conditions may ease a transition to more equal conditions. In the first case, I think, for instance, of political resistance, in the second case, of profit-boosting egalitarian measures as opposed to those which are profit-reducing. And third, and finally, a, the need to change the dynamics of the system and not only to distribute claims more widely, to provide, quote-unquote, more for the little guy in order to truly bring about a, a, a break. This would, for instance, explain why or how we might analyze the Germano-Nordic system of workers' participation in firms' decisions, which he recommends, asking the question whether such measures are enough or how they might be structured in order to bring about different behavioral dynamics and, 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 and I will, this is my truly last sentence and my, again, slightly intemperate question. Is proprietarianism capitalism without a beating heart? And if it is, if it does have a beating heart, where is it and what is it? Thank you. Uh, so, Thomas, after um, limiting Sanjay um, in what he can say in the time he had, I'm afraid with that provocative question, we only have two minutes for you to respond. So let me hand it over to Thomas Piketty. Yeah, let, let me try to be very short. You know, first of all, I, I want to be very clear that, you know, this book, I think, is a bit better than the previous one, but, you know, it still has lots of limitations. And so, I'm, you know, I'm so happy, you know, to have all of you here. You know, I read your articles with a lot of interest. I learned a lot. And, you know, I think the little progress I've made between the two books is largely due to this kind of conversation. And so, uh, you know, I, I really want to be very clear about, about that. Now, on this specific uh issue, you know, you, you, you raised a very specific point at the end of your presentation regarding, you know, this co-determination, you know, German co-determination, Swedish co-determination, is this uh, uh, a way to, to overcome uh, capitalism or is it just still within capitalism and, and what, what do I mean exactly by participatory socialism? Let, let me make clear that, you know, I, I make a specific proposal to try to go much beyond co-determination. So co-determination, you know, in, in its strongest form, you have 50% of voting rights 
for worker representative on the board of large corporation in Germany. This was instituted in 1952. This is already quite a significant change because it means that if, if in addition workers of 10 or 20 percent of the share in the company, or if a local government, which can be very important, have, have, have a 10 or 20 percent share, then you can change the majority even with the shareholders who have 80 or 90 percent of the share. So, you know, it's already something that shareholders, when this was imposed on them and after a very strong uh, social struggle, you know, I, I can tell you, it's not something that they like very much. Now, what I'm, I'm adding to is to generalize this to smaller companies and most importantly, uh, to uh, add to this uh, a strong uh, sailing and the maximum number of voting rights that a single shareholder can have within the 50% of voting rights voting, uh, you know, going to shareholders. So it could be at most 10%, you know, in companies over 100 workers, whatever. Uh, again, you know, I'm not saying I have found the perfect formula in any meaningful manner. I'm just saying that if you push this logic further, you have a system of, of power and a system of rights, which is very significantly different, you know, from the sort of one share, one vote, uh, traditional uh, uh, capitalist system. Uh, you know, there will be a lot more to say, but I'm going to yeah, stop we'll there so that we have more time. That there for now. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to move on to our uh, next panelist, Gurminder Bamra, who is Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies in the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex. Great. Thanks so much for inviting me to be part of this panel and to engage with this really uh, significant book. I mean, one of the key issues that I'd like to highlight is the way in which Professor Piketty, similar to many scholars, organizes his historical comparative analysis in terms of inequality within nations, for example, within India or Britain, within Haiti or France. And yet the European nations he's discussing were rarely nations over the long durée. Rather, they were imperial formations constituted by a colonizing state and the territories and populations that were incorporated. As such, I suggest that without an adequate engagement with global colonial entanglements, it's just not possible to put forward a credible or sustainable future alternative to current inequalities and this is one of the key aims of the book, to think about the ways in which historical patterns of inequality have contributed to contemporary inequalities. Now, I'll just briefly present one example here, that of the British Empire, to illustrate my concerns. In the paper, in the special issue, I do also discuss the French Empire. Now, while claiming to address the historical context of contemporary economic inequalities, Professor Piketty's primary concern with regard to India, as outlined in the book, is the caste system. This is despite him acknowledging that there exists an abundance of evidence that, quote, shows that colonies were organized primarily for the benefit of the colonizers and the metropole. But the relationship is not investigated in terms of its significance in producing both subsequent within country inequalities and inequalities between countries. There's no discussion, for example, of issues such as colonial drain. That is the money that colonizing powers took from the colonized country to the benefit of the colonizer country and how this constitutes an ongoing fund of assets, just as in the way that he discusses wealth as reproducing itself. 
Now, in the context of India, scholars from Dada by Naroji writing in 1901, Lala Rai writing in 1917, Tuatsa Patnaik amongst others more recently, have detailed and discussed this issue at length. And indeed, Jason Hickel recently popularized Utsa Patnaik's work on this, drawing attention to her claim, which is based on an analysis of two centuries of data on tax and trade, that according to a conservative estimate, Britain drained a total of around $45 trillion from India during the period from the Battle of Plassey in 1757 to the outbreak of the Second World War. Now, while Professor Piketty acknowledges that two centuries of colonial rule disrupted the previous developmental logic of India, nowhere is there any mention of what colonization and specifically the wealth extracted from colonial processes did to the developmental logic of Britain. Britain is presented independently of the colonial relation as a proprietarian regime, not as a colonial regime across its history. That is, there's no real discussion about how India's relative poverty today is intimately connected to and more strongly consequent of the very same colonial processes that made Britain wealthy. And I would suggest that the failure to acknowledge the common frame of empire as the condition from which nations subsequently emerged distorts subsequent analyses of inequality on a global scale. Because by only comparing nations in the present and assessing the inequalities between them as consequent of their internal inequality regimes is to misunderstand the processes that have generated inequality globally. A historical and transnational project examining the processes through which contemporary forms of inequality have come to configure the world would require a more adequate understanding of the connected histories that have produced these inequalities as a consequence of processes of colonization and slavery. It would also require us to understand that the current dominance of the political form of the nation cannot simply be read back historically. So the question that I have is, does it make sense to compare the economies of Britain and India over the long durée when for the two centuries prior to 1947, the wealth of India was siphoned off to the benefit of the British economy. And in the light of this, is it enough to argue for a wealth on tax as simply an issue of redistribution in the present without also addressing the necessity of historical reparations? Brilliant. Perfectly on time. I will pass it over to Thomas. Yes, thanks, Gorbinda. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if you didn't see uh, the, the part of the book on this, which, uh, you know, certainly could be, uh, could be stronger, but there is actually quite a lot in the book about reparation and about colonial drain. And, and in fact, I try to quantify the colonial drain in a way which, to my knowledge, uh, uh, has never been done before. Just let me take you two, two examples. You know, when I look at, at British and French wealth, uh, uh, in the 19th century and until World War One, I, I stress very strongly that, for instance, in the case of Britain, you know, one third uh, of everything British own in 1913, they own it in the rest of the world. So they own the rest of the world through, of course, uh, you know, colonial empires, military domination. And if you look at top wealth holders, you know, you have a section in high wealth portfolio in Paris in 1912. You know, it's, it's more than 30, 40% of high wealth portfolios that are made of assets all over the world. And I show that the inflow 
of wealth into France at the time coming from the rest of the world, from capital income coming from the rest of the world, is equivalent to the total manufacturing output of the entire northeast of France, which is the most industrialized region of France. So I, I do have this uh, explicit uh, estimate in the book, which I think are clear enough about the colonial drain. And another example I want to mention regarding reparation, which to my knowledge has never, had never been done before, is for, you know, all the, the analyses of post-slavery uh, uh, financial compensation to slave owners, which played a very big role in British capitalism. And, and uh, so, you know, this is colonial drain, not only coming from India, but from, uh, you know, former uh, slave islands of Britain. And uh, I also have a strong section, you know, on, on the case of Haiti with France, where, you know, I argue that France, uh, you know, the French state should uh, reimburse, uh, you know, say at least 30 billion euro today, which would be the equivalent of the 300 percent of uh, of Haiti's national income in 1825 that was imposed on Haiti in order to reimburse French slave owners for their loss of property in 1825. And, and the analysis of the transfer that were actually made by Haiti to France uh, throughout the 19th century and until the mid-20th century. I mean, this was already known before, but the quantitative analysis of this transfer, to my knowledge, had never been done before. So, you know, there's always more to do in this direction, but, I, you know, I, I certainly, the book does include substantial part exactly in this very direction. So I think in each of these conversations, we are picking up some fantastic probing questions that we are going to have to continue to carry with us as we move through the conversation. Um, and I'm going to move then to our uh, next participant. Uh, sorry, my screen is playing up on me. But uh, so we have with us next Diego Sanchez Ancochea, who is the professor of political, the political economy of development from the University of Oxford. Thank you so much, uh, Nima, for and also to Mike, not just for the invitation today, but for the invitation to pa participate in the special issue. Um, it's actually fantastic and, and so much fun to be, even if it's online. And thank you to Thomas for writing such a splendid book, but also for the generosity of being here, having the conversation with, with us. So let me um, say from the beginning that I think um, capitalism and ideology following on, on the previous book. It's a fantastic book uh, for many, many reasons, including the fact that it um, takes uh, multidisciplinarity seriously and it goes well beyond um, what mainstream economists um, tend to be. It's also great and it's also a big difference. And I think that's probably why Thomas said it's a better book because it actually covers much more ground geographically, recognizing that we need to go beyond um, the OECD countries, Europe and the US in thinking about the problem of, of inequality. Um, so, th so that's that's my starting point and one of the messages. But actually what, what I want to, to push a little bit is uh, in this role of ideology as, as key and convincing, and also on thinking a little bit more about what are the lessons that come if we take the Global South seriously. And in particular in my work and in, in the essay, I think about Latin America and what Latin America can bring in terms of those discussions. So why do I think in a, um, ideology is not enough and we need to remain um, thinking about power as extremely important. So in the um, essay, I discussed two different issues. Um, the one had to do about the relationship between political, political and economic power 
both at the national but also at the international level, something that structuralist economics has shown repeatedly. But here I want to focus on the second of the issues, um, which has to do with the role of uh, authoritarian regimes, dictatorships, in how we think about inequality and whether this is primarily an ideological or a, a problem of power. So it's interesting that while capital and ideology has a fantastic discussion of um, democracy in Europe, about the problems of social democracy, it actually, I think, does not um, mention dictatorships of authoritarian regimes almost once. In fact, in the index at least, that the two words that do not appear uh, at all. Yes, it's actually hard to understand inequality in many parts of the world if we don't think about not just authoritarian regimes, but the threat of authoritarian regimes creates to democracy and creates to the process of development. Um, so democra uh, obviously democratic breaks um, are totally constant in places like Latin America. So just to give you a few numbers, there were eight democracies in 1950, then six in 1955, 12 in 1959, and then only five in 1976. And this is not an accident, but this is the weakness of democracy, in my view, um, he hid and demonstrated um, the problems of power and the threat that democracy had for some of those uh, in power. This is, of course, not a problem of the 20th century, but when we think about Honduras in 2009, when Presidente Zelaya was expelled in the country legally, precisely because it had threatened um, the power of the elite uh, in significant ways. When we think about countries like Paraguay uh, under Fernando Lugo, um, which was impeached precisely because it was trying to pass a land reform and trying to weaken the power of some of the elites. Or with, when we think about a country that is covered in the book and that actually um, a, the whole uh, project of, of world inequalities has, is discussing now much more like Brazil, it's impossible to understand Bolsonaro and what Bolsonaro represents without um, thinking about um, the threat of an authoritarian discontinuity and with it linking that with the power of elites, economic and political elites and how they work together. And of course, I don't want to even mention countries that are also in the OECD and how democracy is actually in question there. And the issue and the, the reason I bring this is not only because I it would invite Thomas to think in the next book about what it means the relationship between democracy and authoritarian regimes, but also because it tells us that power is at the end what constrains many of the projects of the, for the reduction of inequality. There has been ideas and ideologies that were anti-inequality in Latin America for a long time. In fact, one could argue that the region has led that process. But the problem is that any time those ideologies have actually banged into power, different types of powers, have actually, and different people with power, sorry, have actually used all their mechanisms to actually stop that. And therefore, I think thinking about the power of ideology without thinking about the underlying elements that Marx would put on the table um, to how we are going to put that uh, ideology into play will uh, be quite dangerous. Thank you so much. Thomas, we'll hand it over to you. Thank you, thank you, Diego. Well, first of all, let me say very clearly that 
among the many limitations that there are in this book, you know, Latin America is probably one of the less well-covered uh, region, you know, that's lack of my knowledge, lack of the research I am aware of. Uh, authoritarian regime, more generally, I think you're, you're right, are, are not, their role is not acknowledged enough, you know, and certainly in Latin American authoritarian regime in particular. So I talk a little bit about the rise of the national socialist regime in Germany, but then, because of the electoral dimension of the rise of the Nazi, I talk more about the ideological issues than, than about really the straight authoritarian uh, dimension. Now, regarding power and ideology in general, uh, I, I do try to, you know, recognize, you know, of course, the role of, of power. You know, when I, I was talking about uh, uh, IT a minute ago, you know, the beginning of the end of slave, uh, of slave societies and, and, and the slavery system was due to a slave revolt in IT. It was not due to some kind of enlightened discussion in Paris about, uh, you know, ideology. So, uh, and, and, you know, the French Revolution is largely due to peasant revolt, the Bolshevik Revolution, to, you know, to ba balance of power. So, you know, power is, is there. But what I'm trying to stress in the book is that power in itself does not define, you know, what's going to happen after the seizure of power. And, and the, in the case of the Bolshevik revolution, you know, the balance of power allowed to overthrow the Starist regime. But in the end, the set of institutions that was put in place to replace it uh, ended up, you know, at the end of the 20th century to be one of the main force uh, reinforcing, uh, uh, you know, the rise of hypercapitalism and the fact that Russia, you know, after having abolished entirely private property became the world capital of tax haven and oligarchs and financial opacity. So this is where ideology and ideas about the institutions you put in place after the balance of power has allowed you to take power is, is still pretty, pretty important. We will now move to our next panelist, who is Nora Waitkus. Um, Nora is a research officer at the International Inequalities Institute at the LSE and assistant professor at Tilburg University. Thank you so much, Nima. Um, let me start by saying how much I enjoyed reading this book and the wonderful collection of essays in the British Journal of Sociology. I'm very grateful for the invitation today, and I will take up some points from the essay that I've written together with Mike Savage. Let me emphasize as well, as the others have done before me, that Thomas Piketty offers exactly the kind of large-scale thinking that I think social scientists are so desperately seeking in these times. Unfortunately for us as sociologists, economics are not taking the center stage here, as it has been traditionally um, sociology who has been offering this kind of big picture thinking. At the heart of Piketty's theory of social change, we've heard that before lies property. And for us as sociologists interested in wealth and equality class and accumulation, this is a very welcome move. The advantage that we see in putting wealth at the center of social change is that it allows us to move beyond methodological individualism and investigate inequalities within and across multiple entities, such as household, kinship groups, countries, regions, transnationally, within countries, etc. Also, to make use of wealth and property as the driving force of social change enables precisely this kind of long-durée perspective um, that is required for a big theory. However, it seems to me that there's at least one pitfall. Um, Thomas Piketty seems to understand social change, and correct me if I'm wrong here, as a cyclical process in which property becomes ever more concentrated, for example, through the expansion of property rights or the dismantling of policies uh, that prevent such a concentration, which is then often followed by societal attempts to reduce it. However, um, we are not provided with a search for an explanation or a mechanism 
how, for how this kind of social change comes actually about. And of course, ideologies and ideational shifts come in handy to support, legitimize or delegitimize um, each proprietarian regime and shall provide this kind of explanation. However, the same, in a sense, um, applies here as well, because it remains unclear what the mechanisms are through which ideologies become dominant and weakened. Due to this um, yeah, lack of theoretical underpinning of social change, the book is not really able to answer um, questions under what conditions certain levels of inequality actually become unsustainable or in contrast remain sustainable. So um, what follows from this in our view is the question whether we can imagine some kind of wealth inequality threshold or equilibrium beyond which the level of inequality becomes unsustainable. This does not necessarily mean that there's a specific level of inequality um, that automatically manifests itself then in the form of a revolution, the rise of socialism or something else, but we can um, develop at least theoretically an understanding of the empirical and normative limits to wealth and inequality, for example, in the form of limitarianism as it is discussed um, currently in political philosophy. Well, I'm not certainly not asking now for a full-fledged theory um, to be ready in the next five minutes. These observations, I think, require all of us as social scientists to think about the limits to wealth accumulation and inequality more generally. And I think the book um, is a great invitation to do exactly this. The second point I would like to raise is much more called for extension than criticism. What follows from what I said earlier is that the role of ideologies remains somewhat elusive in Thomas Piketty's account of social change. And this can be problematic as ideologies obviously can vary across time, place, and dimension of stratification. For example, um, countries such as Sweden and Norway today have very high levels of wealth inequality, but are perceived as egalitarian and so on. So I think um, these cross-cutting um, dimensions of time, space, and, and, and dimensional stratifications are important to investigate more systematically. And I think what uh, can be offered here by sociology is to point out the cultural processes of discourses, narrations, and cultural behaviors that lie below there and that could be the missing link in order to understand the concepts of ideology and capital better. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Nora. Uh, yeah, you know, I, look, I think I, I don't have any major disagreement. I think, you know, I, I, I certainly do not propose a full, you know, theory of social change and ideological formation in the book. I try to investigate specific episodes. The, the general view I'm pushing is not so much one of cyclical change because, you know, there's a general view in the book that there is a long-run process toward more equality, you know, in the long run. And there is some process of learning about institutions, about new institutions to deal with the reduction of inequality, with, you know, either through the education system, the social system, the, the progressive taxation, the electoral system. And, you know, sometimes, you know, there are some uh, new institutions that were supposed to bring more equality and more emancipation, which were a, a disaster, which of course puts some setback in the, on the, on this long run, uh, transformation. But there is very much in the, in the, in the book, you know, this view about a sort of long run collective learning about, about institution, which of, happens through struggles, you know, happens through uh, social struggles, uh, political mobilization, and, and you know, like including revolts, revolution, and, and this will continue uh, uh, like this. But but 
again, you know, at the time of, 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 of giving some concrete institutional form to the new uh, political order and regime after this, uh, you know, this uh, transition happened and balance of power allows to shift uh, the equilibrium in another direction, these dimensions of learning are very important. So just to take an example about Sweden, which you mentioned, I, I like a lot the work by um, Eric Bengström, which I use in Sweden, which reminds us that, you know, Sweden, until 1910 had one of the most sophisticated inegalitarian organization of property and power in the world, you know, with a system of voting rights where you could have up to 100 voting rights if you're very wealthy, you know, even corporations at the local level could vote in municipal election. Uh, and, and then uh, the state capacity of Sweden and state power in Sweden was put to the service of a completely different political project after 1932. And today, As, as Eric Bernstein argue, argues, you know, maybe there is a lack of institutional memory about, uh, say, the role of progressive taxation of inheritance in the, to prevent, you know, the rise of inequality in the long run. And there is sometimes an insistence of culture, you know, as if it was the Swedish culture which prevent inequality from returning to the initial level, which, which can be quite dangerous because institutions in, in the end is, is, you know, what have made uh, uh, Sweden more equal rather than culture uh, or, you know, whatever uh, civilizational tradition. Uh, and and, and uh, in the same manner, you know, in, new institution or lack of certain institution can make uh, inequality in, increase again. So, I, I, you know, this is this kind of uh, imperfect recall, imperfect memory, but long run, positive learning process, which is sort of at the core of the, of the, you know, the analysis of social change, which I am trying to, to develop. Thank you. And with that, we will turn to our final um, panelist, who is Jens Lerke, who is a reader in agrarian and labor studies in the Department of Development Studies at SOAS. Thanks. So thanks to the organizers for organizing and for inviting me to take part in this critical celebration of this important book. Um, my brief intervention will draw on the contribution to the special issue by Al and myself entitled Black Lives Matter, uh, Capital and Ideology Spiraling Out from India. My main point, my challenge to Thomas Piketty, if you like, is that uh, his book actually remains trapped within the discipline of economics. It, it sets out to combine economic, historical, sociological, cultural and political approaches, but the understandings of ideology by these disciplines are, are, are ignored somewhat, and that has significant consequences. Uh, The book uh, therefore presents a somewhat narrow understanding of, of ideology and how it's linked to inequality regimes uh, and its policy proposals, which of course are very commendable, are, are stuck within economics. Uh, they uh, are also set out as choices, a choice between ideologies that we're free and able to make. So importantly, this, this also means that there's no political roadmap here. There's no analysis of how to overcome existing power relations. Um, ideology is indeed central to capitalism. In modern India, as we have shown in our work, caste-based oppression uh, of the ex-untouchable Dalit castes and the indigenous population, the Adivasis, has modernized 
but it still keeps Dalits and Adivasis at the bottom of society as cheap labor and as second-class citizens. This is done through a mix of oppressive ideological hegemony and naked power and physical violence to reinforce it when inquired. And when, when uh, Diego spoke before, I, I certainly recognized the, that that is always there. Um, capital and ideology provides important data on race, caste and inequality and how racism is, is used politically to cement inequality regimes. But as the Black Lives Matter movements have shown, racism, casteism, etc., go way beyond economic discrimination. Discrimination and oppression permeates all aspects of life. In fact, numerous scholars argue that caste, race, gender relations fundamentally shape capital accumulation, inequalities in our lives. So to think about, uh, to think that e economic inequalities can be changed without also dealing directly with the wider ideological ideologies and power relations of racism, casteism, etc., is, in my view, naive. And, and, for example, Antonio Gramsci, one of the foremost scholars on the relationship between capitalism and ideology, argued that ideological hegemony was central to the survival of capitalism. That meant also that counter-hegemonic ideological struggles were central to anti-capitalist struggles. And Gramsci argued that the ideological hegemony of the ruling bloc was established throughout society, in its political and cultural institutions, in education, through the families, through religious institutions, and in labor relations. And that meant that it also had to be countered across all these fields. This was not a matter of two high-level ideologies competing with each other. Instead, it was a struggle in the field of common sense, the field of messy and contradictory, taking for granted views in society, the everyday struggle, uh, the everyday field of struggle between ideologies. And the whole gamut of oppressive ideologies needed to be contested directly and specifically. Um, uh, Thomas Piketty's book proposes a program of important economic reforms to challenge the inequality regimes. The way to pursue them for him is to aim for a direct, high-level ideological choice, this is a word that is often used in the book, uh, between the two different economic regimes. So my first question is, is that feasible, given the argument presented here, uh, i.e. without the struggles in the field of common sense across society? My second question is, is reforming the inequality regimes possible without challenging the wider power relations, including the oppressive hegemonic ideologies along the lines of race, caste and gender beyond economic inequalities? So the argument here is that if patriarchy, racism and casteism are essential building blocks of capitalism and its inequality regimes, then they must be challenged in full across the board too. Otherwise, any egalitarian solution will be built on sand if it can be built at all. And I, this is not something the book engages much with. Finally, it is clearly a conscious choice that capital and ideology does not engage much with scholarship from the wider social sciences on the relationship between capitalism and ideology. There are plenty sociologists working in this field historically as well that are not in there. Gramsci is not mentioned just to take one. And uh, same on racism, casteism and gender-based oppression. So my third question is- I, I say, can we, uh, 
I think we're just out of time. It's just the why question there. Why this choice? Why choose not to do that? Thank you. Excellent. Thomas. Oh, yeah. So let, let me start with this uh, this question, Jens. I mean, I don't know. There's no choice here. You know, let, just please put it on on, the, on my ignorance. You know, you should, you know, I just the limited, not really, you know, the limitations of my readings, the limitation of my knowledge, you know, are enormous. You know, I'm trying to make progress, but, you know, please uh, help me. So, you know, send me, I read your paper with great interest, uh, uh, but, you know, if you think, uh, you know, of other, uh, you know, work which, you know, should absolutely be there, which are, were not there, send me an email, I will read them, I will do my best. You know, I'm, look, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to be rude with anyone, but, you know, of course, when you write a book on such a wide variety of, of you know, you, you necessarily miss, miss a lot of what has been done and written. I did my best to try not to miss too much, but I'm sure, you know, I, I so, you know, don't take it at all, uh, uh, you know, as, 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 a, as a choice. Now, is ideology a choice? Uh, well, not quite. You know, of course, uh, people express social interest and express conflicting uh, uh, social interests through their ideology. So, yeah, so it's not just you, you get up a morning and you pick an ideology. But what I stress in the book, you know, throughout the book, is that social class alone, your social position alone, does not fully determine, you know, a, a full-blown theory of property, a theory of education, a theory of democracy, a theory of the of the frontier system, how you organize your own political communities, the relation with other political communities, the world political communities. So the, the set of possible ideological construction and institutional uh, uh, imagination, you know, and the complexity of the question, the multidimensionality of class uh, is such that uh, class position alone is, is, you know, never fully going to determine ideology. And at this stage, you know, I think we are, we are all going to agree. Uh, uh, so in the specific case of, of India, you know, I think your, your work and, and the work you refer to in your, um, in your uh, uh, article on, on, on the uh, uh, you know, sort of grassroots uh, movement and 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 and, uh, and 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 you know, fight and struggles between uh, you know be, between dominant caste and and dominated caste. You know, is is uh, extremely important, and you know that's part of the many uh, you know limitations of my book, not to cover them as as well as I as you know as I should have. But I really try to stress in the case of India that. You know, it was not entirely obvious to begin with at the time of independence, you know, what would be the balance between uh, sort of reparations, sort of caste-based reparation and, and quota and redistribution, whatever, and more sort of universalist-based, uh, uh, say, more uh, traditional uh, sort of Marxist approach to property transformation and transformation of the legal regime. And, and you know, there's been different strategies in different parts of India, as you very well known. And, you know, to some extent, you know, Kerala, West Bengal, you know, have been more successful with Communist Party in power than, than you know, some other states in the north or, or in the west, uh, uh, which put different emphases. And, you know, I try in, in my analysis of India to... to to, to give, you know, some, some, uh, some, some sort of balanced account between what, uh, quotas, positive discriminations were able to do, which in some case was positive. But at the same time, you know, the lack of systemic and structural economic reform, in particular with, with regard to the property regime, structural land reform, uh, etc., uh, you know, was a very strong limitation of how much you can transform the old uh, uh, inequality regime. So, 
Look, we, we, we could talk about this forever, but you know, I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to improve in the future, and please help me. Uh, so, thank you all. Um, thank, uh, thank you to the panelists, to Thomas, for this fantastic, you know, flash debate. We are now going to turn to questions from our audience. Um, so, I just want to let you know that if you have questions, you can put them into the Q and A. Please. Uh, for our audience, let us know your name and your affiliation. There are more questions, obviously, than we can get to uh, today, but the questions we're getting are really fantastic and show um, how widely read this book is and how much it engages with. So the questions we're getting so far are really fantastic. I'm um, The questions are largely directed um, at Thomas Piketty, but if others want to uh, jump in on, you know, everyone on the panel, um, please do. So for those on the panel, if you could just put your hand up, if you would like to respond to the questions as I read them out, I'll be sure to come and call on you. I'm going to start the questions by um, selecting one from our audience who is also a member of the special issue, the British Journal of Sociology special issue. So our first question comes from Tariq Abuchadi, who is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Zurich. Um, and he has this question, I'm just going to read it. Part four of Capital and Ideology revolves around the transformation of social democratic and socialist parties from parties that represent working class to parties that now represent more educated middle-class voters. It argues that this change in support base has led social democratic parties to depart from redistributive politics. So two questions. How do you square this argument with the vast literature in political science and sociology that argues and empirically demonstrates that new middle class voters, especially those that support the left, are strongly in favor of redistributive policies in many countries are actually more so um, in favor of these policies in the working class? And number two, taking into account the socio-structural changes of post-industrial societies, especially education and skill upgrading and changing occupational structures, how could there be a majority of the left without also appealing to educated and middle-class voters? Thank you. Uh, so, okay, so let me make very clear that, you know, I'm not saying that you know it's bad that the left is getting uh, is getting educated voter i'm just saying what's what's a bit strange is that over time you know the slope uh, you know the, the between between uh, the, you know if you look at the graph between education level and propensity to vote for the left you know this has been completely reversed so in the sense that you know between 1950 1980 uh, uh, you know the more educated you are the more you vote for the right or Christian Democrats or the conservative in Britain or the Republican in the US. And, and, uh, and today it has been completely reversed, which is not true for income of, or property ownership. So there's been sort of a decoupling of the, of the education dimension and the, and the income uh, dimension. And this is what I refer to as the rise of the Brahmin left and merchant right. Uh, now I, I should, I should make clear that the, um, uh, you know, two, two things. First, you know, the, the analysis that I propose of this in my book is very much incomplete. You know, I only look at a relatively small number of countries. And we have actually just published a new book uh, called uh, uh, Political Cleavages and Social Inequalities, a study of 50 democracies, 1948-2020, which just came out in French uh, 
a few weeks ago and will come out at Harvard University Press in November uh, 2021, where we look at a much broader set of countries. So this is a, a multi, we have like 30 co-authors and we look at 50 countries. So not only the 25, uh, 25 Western uh, democracies, but, but actually more than half of the book, you know, the other 25 plus countries are from uh, uh, Asia, uh, uh, Middle East, Africa, Latin America. And, you know, what, one of the big messages is that, in fact, this, this rise of uh, Brahmin left merchant rights that we see in the West, is, it's very different in the rest of the world. And if anything, in, in the, we see many countries in the rest of the world, you know, moving toward more class-based uh, conflict, or at least not the same form of identity-based conflict that we see very much uh, uh, in, in, the, in the West. So, anyway, the, the, the book does not answer uh, all of your concerns and, and questions, but I think it, it goes more in this direction. It provides a richer analysis and finer analysis of the different uh, country cases than what's in the book where I used some of the preliminary material from this research program, but it was, uh, it was very uh, uh, incomplete. Uh, just one point, you know, you mentioned the working class in some cases that would be less in favor of redistribution than the middle class. This, I'm, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm not so, I'm not so sure, you know, it's, it's, uh, what you see, what we see at least in our data is that, you know, it's not that the, you know, the, you have a huge, uh, uh, fall in participation among the working class. So, you know, if, I, if we, when we look at the bottom 50% income or bottom 50% education voters in France or Britain over the past 50 years, you know, there's been a huge fall. And, and in fact, the entire, almost the entire fall in participation uh, from from the from at the aggregate level comes from the bottom fifty percent group and not at all from the top fifty percent. And and the way we interpret this is that you know if, if these voters is that you know these many of these voters you know would like some other uh, 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 you know some 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 other uh, political programs and uh, you know are, are sort of felt a little bit left aside but by what's being proposed and and in particular the fact that there's less redistributive ambition uh, I think it's, it's it can you know it's a, it's a you know has to be part of the explanation I mean if these voters were very enthusiastic about the, the kind of identity-based politics and xenophobic politics proposed by uh, Le Pen, etc., you know, they would all uh, jump and go and vote with a lot of enthusiasm. And, and that's not at all what we observe. We have this enormous rise in non-participation, which, which uh, suggests that somehow this you know, Brahmin left merchant right uh, uh, equilibrium is, is, is leaving a lot of voters, uh, uh, you know, unsatisfied with the choice they, 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 they have to make, especially in the bottom groups of the, of the population. Excellent. So we're now going to move on to more questions from our audience. Um, and I've kind of, uh, you know, stopped the debate at various points uh, just in the interest of hearing from everybody, but I will try and leave in a little bit of time um, at the very end of today's conversation for uh, those on the panel who want to come back and say a little bit more or have you know, a final thought before we end for the day. But moving on to more questions from our audience. The first one comes from Juan Kostin, who is an alumnus, who asks, like Rawls, Professor Piketty's framework for equality appears to be confined to national borders or in his case, the EU. Is there not an argument that one of the most egregious forms of inherited wealth is that of, is that of being born within a wealthy 
country. Similarly, how would Professor Piketty address the evidence that globalization has diminished inequality between countries and in its earlier forms has served to subsume some highly discriminatory practices in various countries? Um, these different questions, I guess, in different ways ask us, as Gurminder has also asked us to uh, explicitly think about how to theorize the global interrelationships that structure how people in discrete locations experience inequality. So I will turn that over to Professor Piketty. If anybody else would like to jump in, uh, just use the, way, the raise hand icon and I will call on you as well. Yeah, so, you know, my take on this is that, you know, the world economic system is extremely unequal. And it has always been very unequal, you know, at the, at the time of, of the colonial empires, in some ways, you know, you can say it was even more unequal. But in fact, it has remained very unequal with all sorts of forms of neo-colonialism, which, you know, I talk about in the book, where, for instance, you know, I show how, you know, in effect, uh, rich countries... Uh, had a very negative impact on the process of state formation in, in sub-Saharan Africa when they imposed, starting in the 1980s, 70s, 80s, 90s, a very quick removal of all uh, uh, trade tax and trade barrier, which in, in effect impoverished uh, you know, the state without some, uh, some new uh, tax revenue in substitution coming from income tax or wealth tax, because at the same time, Western organization, you know, we're also pushing against income tax and wealth tax and everything. So in the end, it's just contributed to push to even weaker states, which then, uh, uh, you know, rich countries, uh, you know, pretend uh, they compensate through them, their uh, non-governmental organization, etc. But which is, in fact, unfortunately, just another way to get around uh, local uh, state building, and, and I think is, is, you know, quite negative in the in the in the long run. So. To, you know, today, you know, what are the, the you know, the solution? You know, I, I mentioned the issue of reparation in, you know, in some case like France and Haiti, but, you know, beyond that, uh, I think the real issue is, you know, when we talk today about uh, changing the international economic system and, for instance, you know, fixing the tax system, you know, think of the recent discussion about taxing multinationals with Joe Biden and everybody in Europe saying, oh, we have to do something, you know, even the US now are doing something, so we have to follow Biden. And, you know, I hope Europe will do something, except that so far, you know, this has been a game between rich countries. So this has been a game between, uh, you know, US and Europe trying to split the tax base that is now in tax havens. And so they've proposed at the OECD different formula, uh, you know, based on sales, based on wage bill in different countries. So, you know, the general idea is to have a unified declaration of profits for big multinationals at the world level, and then we split the profits according to sales, according to wage bill, the different countries. I, I don't know whether this will happen, but so far at OECD discussion, this is the best that can happen. Except that the best that can happen is actually not so good, because in practice, you know, 96% of the profits of world multinationals will be actually be split between rich countries. So if you look at the share uh, that would go to poor countries and, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, South India, it's like two, two or three percent, uh, which, you know, especially after the COVID crisis, you know, would, would seem like a, a big joke. And, and so what's the solution in this case? Well, I think, you know, the only way to, to, to you know, I think poor countries and, you know, citizens of the world living in poor countries, you know, should not receive uh, aid uh, controlled by rich countries. They should have a right 
to part of the tax revenue paid by the most powerful uh, multinationals, uh, billionaires, uh, the, the most powerful economic actors of the world for one simple reason, which is that there will be no prosperity you know, without, you know, the world system of division of labor, exploitation of natural resources, exploitation of labor that has been in place for the past uh, three or four uh, uh, centuries. So there's no, you know, the idea of a purely private wealth uh, that is sort of deserved by a particular country or a particular individual in a particular country makes um, no sense uh, at all. So in the case of multinational taxation, the only way to get a decent share to poor countries will be to allocate some of the tax base on, on the basis of population you know, in the end. If you just do the wage bill or sales, you know, you're bound to, to, this is bound to be a game between rich countries. And so uh, introducing population, you know, just per capita basis as at least one of the criterion that is used to allocate the, the world profit of multinationals uh, is, is the only way to get a decent. And I think this is a big, uh, this is a, a big fight that is not completely out of reach in the sense that once the idea of, of having, uh, you know, a, a world uh, a, a, a declaration of profits for multinational and using some other criteria and profits to reallocate the tax base to different countries, once this logic is on the table, and it is now on the table and almost accepted by US and Europe, you know, why you stop with sales uh, or wage bill? You know, why not population? Because, you know, wage bill, the problem is that multinational, which operate, uh, operate in certain countries, they typically uh, have uh, uh, other uh, firms around them which work for the, for their, uh, for their, uh, for their main platform or main. And, and so how do you take this into account? And in the end, you know, using a, a population, you know, is, is, uh, is, is, uh, you know, makes, uh, you know, makes a lot of sense. Oh, anyway, this is a, a practical example, but saying that, you know, showing that we, you know, looking at, at uh, uh, economic transformation just at the level of, the, of, of one country or the nation state or Europe, you know, is certainly not uh, the way I, I look at this. Sanjay, you wanted to jump in? Yes, very quickly. Just two points. One empirical that whether globalization is reducing world inequalities depends a lot on in, in relative terms. And uh, lost you for a second. Would you mind uh, starting over again? So sorry, I was just saying that if you can hear me now, if you look at uh, uh, the global inequalities without fast growing countries, for example, China, large fast growing countries, then it, the, the, the impact of globalization on world inequality looks less clear cut, because a very large proportion of the world population lives in countries that have been relatively slow growing in Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa over the last three decades and so on. So it's a patchy picture, but it's certainly not straightforward that it's been reducing world inequalities for the vast majority, as far as the vast majority are concerned. And that, of course, is also based on relative, not absolute inequalities. The absolute differences are increasing even now between uh, some of the fast growing countries and the richer countries. The second point I would make is that I don't think we should view this problem simply through the lens of taxation. We need to think about what a pro-development global rules system would look like, as Danny Roderick and others have emphasized, what the trading system would look like, what the system with respect to regulation of investment and many other factors. Tax is an ex post redistributive measure, tax and transfer, but we need to be thinking nationally and globally about ex ante 
pre-market and in-market measures that would change the dynamics of the world economy. Yeah, I, Sanjay, just to follow up on this, I, I cannot agree more with you. You know, I think changing the rule of the game, for instance, for the governance of corporations, for trade regime is, is absolutely critical. But don't forget that, you know, the, the, the main impact of progressive taxation historically has been on pre-tax rather than after tax. So in, in other words, you know, when you put 90% tax rate at the top, you just kill any possibility for anyone to be paid above a certain uh, level. When you do that for inheritance and, and for wealth, you know, again, that's going to have a huge impact on pre-tax next generation or right away if you do it on an annual basis. So, the distinction between what's pre-tax and, and, and post-tax and pre-distribution and redistribution, I think, is, has been a little bit uh, exaggerated. And, and in fact, the, the biggest impact of progressive taxation is really pre-tax. So we now have a number of different kinds of questions in the chat, and I'm going to group some of them together around um, kind of common concerns. So a number of our um guests in the audience have raised questions about media and media um, infrastructures and inequalities. And so let me read a few of them now. The first one comes from um, Kailash Koshik, who is an LSE alumni um, and assistant professor of media studies at Christ University, Bangalore in India. And uh, his question is, when we are discussing ideology, power and capital and suggesting ways to solve inequality globally, what would be the panel's thoughts on reorganizing media ownership, including alternative models of media, especially when public understanding is essential in fighting inequality? Um, along these lines, we have uh, a couple more. Um, sorry, let me just uh, scroll to them. Um, one comes from Kate Meager, who is in international development at the LSE, to Thomas Piketty or um, any others, given the ways in which ideology and power are hidden in data regimes, in ideologies of data objectivity, mounting evidence of algorithmic bias, the concealed power of the groups who shape data regimes, is engagement with data part of the solution or part of the problem in intensifying inequality in contemporary capitalism? That is a data question as opposed to a media question, but they overlap um, at some point. And then one more from Joshua Lustus, who is an assistant professor of statistics at the LSE. Are new information and communications technologies democratizing or concentrating control over the direction of ideology? Can our, how can supporters of democracy make use of or change this direction? So that's a number of slightly differently um, targeted questions, but I will put them on the table um, and open up the floor to our panelists. I, I can I can respond, but if some other people at the panel want to respond, you know, I, I don't want to take all the time. So uh, uh, I think we're happy to start with you. If, uh, okay, okay. Let, let me start. So I, I do have in the book a, a short section on the media funding and the reform of media funding, but that's far too short as compared to the importance of the subject, because indeed, you know, when we think about the ideology and the development of various ideology, you know, media is, uh, of course, play a central role. So in, in the book, I, you know, I, I describe a number of, of proposals that have been made in, in certain countries to have, uh, you know, much more... Uh, 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 you know, participatory uh, uh, organization of the of governance in the media with more more power to journalists. And you know, I would say, you know, this is an area where there's actually a lot of 
room for action at, at the, at the national level. You know, countries can actually decide that, you know, in the governance of media, uh, uh, say, you know, representative of journalists or readers, you know, have, have uh, half of the seats or more of the seats. They can put strong rules, uh, on the fact that, you know, someone uh, should not uh, be able to, uh, you know, fully control a, a media if he, if he has some uh, business interest somewhere else. I mean, there's been some attempt and there, there has been some public media in a number of, of countries in particular in Europe, but by and large, this legislation have not been updated uh, in recent decades and to the development of online media, but, but you know, they could. And, and we have the same problem also, not only for the financing of the media, but for the financing of political parties, which have remained, or in some cases, which have become even more oligarchic than they, they were uh, in the past. And in some cases, like in my own country, France, you know, you have a system of tax uh, reduction, which in effect subsidizes, uh, you know, the biggest uh, uh, gift uh, to political campaign, uh, uh, much more than, you know, the little people who have a little uh, uh, contribution to their uh, political party or political movement. So this is going exactly, you know, this is doing exactly the opposite of what you could think of a public system to regulate money in politics and in the media. And on all these different issues, I think also there's, maybe there's a lack of attention to the details sometimes. And, and, you know, I think it's very important that the mobilizations through a social organization and political movement, you know, uh, you know, are able to channel the sort of collective attention and collective energy in order to change uh, this kind of uh, of, uh, of institutional uh, setup. Just one little word on, you know, data regime and, and new information technology. We, we're supposed to live in an age of big data, but I think as far as, so, so, you know, as far as public data goes, we actually very often are in an age of big uh, public opacity. So, for instance, you know, transnational wealth ownership is deliberately uh, organized through a system of opacity and, and, you know, this has been organized like that for political reason. And, and, uh, and, uh, so, you know, age of big data, that's for the, you know, the big data monopolies are, are given the right and are, 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 you know, are left with the possibility to, to collect everything they want on us and do whatever they want on us. But when it comes to using uh, information technology for public purposes and public transparency, uh, you know, in, in some cases, in some cases, there's actually, you know, I've seen some deterioration of the, uh, uh, you know, data that we have in order to follow wealth and to measure wealth over time, you know, in recent uh, decades, you know, with the rise of flat tax system for capital income, with the disappearance of inheritance tax, with, the, you know, the, the uh, capital flows with no uh, automatic transmission of information. And, and all these evolutions, you know, have actually led to a deterioration of the, of the data system and public data system, which is really uh, quite, uh, quite paradoxical given given you know the evolution of the of the technology so it, the bottom line is it's all political you know the technology you know it depends what we do collectively with the technology and the rules the collective rules we put on, 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 on these new technologies so we're rapidly running out of time um, I'm going to take one more question which I think many in the audience might share it comes from Michael Harvey who asks to what extent does professor Piketty consider that populism leads to more inequality. Thatcher, Reagan, et cetera, I would welcome his view on whether populism has led to worse COVID national figures, um, citing the examples of Trump, Johnson, Modi, Bolsonaro, um, this, and uh, 
Michael is an alumnus of Open University and the University of Warwick. Yeah, you know, I think for COVID, I'm, I'm not sure any country right now is in a position, you know, to give lessons to other countries. You know, I, I, I don't know. You know, I think it's, uh, f- you know, of course, what Trump uh, did, or, you know, the kind of attitude he had and what Bolsonaro is still doing, you know, is very uh, uh, depressing and, and, you know, did not uh, was not very positive. But, you know, what other countries have been doing, you know, I think is also... Um, is also quite sad. You know, I think the lack of investment in public hospitals, public services is something that we are really paying. You know, we rea- you know, in a country like France, we realize that the number of beds in hospitals that could have been used uh, uh, for to 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 face uh, the epidemics, you know, had been divided by two over the past 15 years. So, you know, it's uh, that's uh, you know the consequences of uh, of past political choices. And at the global level, you know, I think the the way we have blocked. Uh, the request by uh, India and South Africa to uh, 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 to to suspend uh, patent rights for vaccines and medical equipment, you know, is a is a pure is a shame. It's a, a shame because there are production possibilities in India and South Africa and other countries which could have been used more to sometimes transform a little bit the formula for the vaccine or the medical equipment, and we're still. You know, they, they've, they've played the, 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 they've played the rules of multilateral institution by putting on the table at the World Trade Organization a request. They did it once, they did it twice, they did it three times. And, you know, they've always faced a veto from European Union and in particular France and Germany who like to give lessons, you know, in their discourse. But in practice, this was a very practical issue. And, you know, I think it's a, Okay, the, the Chinese vaccine is not, and, and Russian uh, vaccine production possibilities are not as high as they, as they could have been, and uh, they, maybe they will be. But you know, if they had been even larger, and 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 China would have, uh, uh, you know, covered, uh, you know, the, the more of the world with their vaccine. You know, I think the, the the lesson for 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 the world and and the you know the consequence for how the Western countries and rich countries are viewed. By the South, you know, uh, would have been uh, even worse. And anyway, it's too, you know, it's too early, I guess, to have a complete, uh, you know, complete analysis of this, of course. And so with that, we have to stop the Q&A portion of today's session. Um, We, again, are almost out of time, but I wanted to uh, take this opportunity to ask our panelists if they have any kind of, you know, I think this is the beginning of the conversation. as opposed to the end of it. But as we kind of depart, are, does anyone have any kind of final thoughts? Yes, no, thank you so much for that. It's been really, really interesting. And I guess the one thing that I would want to sort of leave everyone with is that it's great to see that there's increased engagement with histories which are newly understood, such as Haiti, the issues of reparations, thinking about colonialism and so on. And I guess the next challenge, and I see it still as a challenge that needs to be taken up, is how does understanding these histories change the concepts that we then establish on the basis of them? Because I find it still quite extraordinary that proprietarian regimes and colonial regimes and esclavist regimes or slavery regimes, as you call them, can be understood as distinct regimes when it was proprietarian regimes that undertook slavery and colonialism. So if we accept that these proprietarian regimes are also colonial regimes, then why have two ideal types except to obscure the inequalities that are produced through their relationships, as opposed to elucidate those inequalities by acknowledging them within a common frame? 
And just one other key thing is that once you talk about reparations from Haiti to France, which were given, and you discuss the question of whether those who had been enslaved should have got reparations themselves, but you leave it as an open question, and you also talk about redistribution within countries, there is really no discussion of the reparations that the global north might need to pay the global south in order truly to address the global inequality that is a consequence of 500 years of colonialism. It is not enough to talk about within country inequality when global inequalities have been constituted through these broader histories. Jens? Thanks. One of the very important points that, that Thomas Piketty makes in his book is around boundaries, that one has to think of identity boundaries and class cleavages and how they, they interact. And uh, I, I, would, I would plea for more attention to be brought to that, how such boundaries, such, how such identities are, are central part of, of the economy, but also goes way beyond the economy. And, and the need to understand their lives and why they are being construed the way they are in order to deal with inequality, I think is quite central. Thomas, I see you nodding. Did you have any final words for us? Uh, well, I don't know if Diego or Sunshine or Nora want to say something. Uh, no, look, uh, Gorminda, I, I fully agree with you. You know, when I was talking about the transformation of the multinational tax on multinationals and, and giving a bi much bigger share to the South, you know, I, I think that's exactly the kind of uh, redistribution you were referring to. So I, it seems to me we are more in the same page than you seem to believe. But uh, let's, you know, let's try to make progress in any case, you know. Diego, did you want to jump in? No, I mean, I, I would just emphasize that um, in thinking about what's next, um, I think understanding all countries better is clearly one, but that's very much in the in the project, Thomas, that not just you, but people around you are doing. So, I, But I think the other is to think about the link between policy and politics much more, right? That, that when I think about the next president of Peru, for example, the issue is not whether she, he has the right ideology. The issue is how he creates um, the coalitions that will be behind the policies that we want him to implement. So thinking about the, the, the link, it seems to me, between the creation of coalitions and the ideology and the power that is used to that is, is the next challenge, not academically only, but politically for, for all of us, and maybe part of the next book that we can discuss in a few years. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think we can all look forward to that. I don't see any other hands. Um, Nima, Nima, could I just say one, one tiny word, which is uh, I think there's a lot more to say on the relation between economic feasibility and political feasibility. And I think Thomas has laid out some really good ideas about possible directions. Yeah. But we need to bring in Diego's concern about power much more centrally. And a, a lot of conventional economic arguments have to be thought about and if, 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 if possible dismissed or if appropriate dismissed. Uh, or not this, but uh, feasibility concerns, I think, um, stage in the next. And uh, thank you for this. Thank you, Thomas. Yeah. There were a lot of questions in the chat as well about the overlap between uh, political feasibility and economic feasibility. Um, so with that, uh, I want to both thank every, all of our panelists, um, but thank you uh, who have all joined us today on behalf of my colleagues at the British Journal of Sociology, the III, um, and LSE events for 
being a part of this conversation. Um, and you can find out more by going to the British Journal of Sociology website. Thank you again for joining us at such a busy time.